Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. We've got Ben McFarland with us. He is a biochemistry professor. Uh, he has a book on, on chemistry and, the, and, and earth. I did my best to do a little bit of skimming before that, Ben, but that's probably about the best that I have now. Chemistry and everything else, that works. So. He, he hails from Seattle, Washington. And he's connected to BioLogos. Uh, I was connecting with him a little bit beforehand that BioLogos really scratches an itch for me. Uh, I have a degree in math education. I'm in full-time ministry. But anytime I have a question uh, that deals with science and my Christian, no, 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 no. that uh, I go to BioLogos first and, and look up their articles and listen to their podcast. They have just been the sweet spot of how uh, I look for answers uh, in science to the faith. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to Ben. And again, if you have any technical questions or you have questions pertaining to the presentation, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Take it away, Ben. Great. Thanks, Phil. And um, yeah, I want to say again, BioLogos is all about answering questions and the questions have sort of shifted. Um, I would not have predicted that I would be doing a talk like this a year ago, but we sort of uh, follow with what, you know, nature tells us and with what God speaks through nature, you know, and uh, with the conviction that God's holding it all in his hands. So we are um, following and seeing what's what's happened in the past year has been surprising, but there has been just as much of a calling to answer questions in this time. It's just that the questions have changed, right? So um, I'm a biochemistry professor. That means I like both biology and chemistry. Uh, there's nine letters of chemistry in biochemistry, so I'm probably more on the side of chemistry. If I have to pick a science, though, I say that um, my favorite one is biochemistry. So I want to, before I start, I just want to get a feel for what area of science would you say is your favorite? You can be as vague or as specific as you want to. And would you just go ahead and feel free to chat that into the box? I've got the little chat box open for now. I'm just kind of curious, what kind of sciences would you say is your favorite? And so biology, specifically immunology, that's, we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. Chemistry, that's, I think chemistry is great. In fact, all of these involve chemistry, but that you're talking to a chemist here. Wildlife conservation, like I was saying before, I have a friend who actually worked in the Pennsylvania area, for those of you in that area, studying deer. And we have astrophysics is interesting. That's really great stuff. Paleontology is also cool. And uh, physics and paleontology actually kind of go together. You can talk about the biomechanics of dinosaur um, skeletons and things like that. So you can go to either of the extremes, atomic or astronomic. You can zoom in and you can uh, zoom out with science. And we actually have, that's actually one of the themes I want to talk about. We've talked about things all along the scales of uh, things from atoms all the way up to galaxies, right? So science is about taking these things apart in some ways. There's certain things that don't fall under the umbrella of science, but I'm going to talk about um, I've devoted my life, in a sense, to teaching about science and teaching about all these areas. So I like all the areas that we've seen here. Now, I'm going to have to close the chat box because I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And uh, But if you do have chats, um, you can send them to Phil or um, and he'll mediate that from here on out. OK, so um, all that is to say, we've got a lot of science to talk about. 
and let's get talking. But before we get talking, the more important thing, I'd like to pray before we start. And I'd like to repeat the words someone else has come up with um, by Howard Thurman. So please pray with me. Open unto me light for my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. And I think that we can all say that prayer, whichever branch of science or whichever branch of non-science we're living through at this point. So I I think it's always important to be upfront about your thesis. My thesis is that God made the world in a way that we can take it apart and, by God's grace, put it back together again with medicine and vaccines. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about what's happened in the past year. So I have sort of two parts to my talk. And I'm going to start off with talking about how I see teaching and research can happen at the same time. And then we'll talk about how science and faith can happen at the same time. So to give you a little bit of my background with science, I was always, I I sort of stumbled into this. I didn't like wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a scientist. Instead, what I said is they've got this elective in seventh grade where you take this class called science research. And I kept taking that class all the way seventh through 12th grade. It's one of the strengths of the Florida education system that I was in, that they had that chance where you put together a project. And that was how I grew into becoming a scientist. I didn't even realize that I wanted to go to grad school in chemistry until my senior year in undergraduate. And so um, it's never too late to change, you know, but you can see where God's been sort of building you towards taking apart the parts of the world we can take apart is one of the things that's always fascinated me, analyzing it with science. And so you have um, Mr. Regan was my seventh through ninth grade science research teacher. And then you have my dissertation up there. You can see that that involves biochemistry and immunology. MHC class two proteins are immune system proteins. And that was in 2001. Now I've written a book and then I've, um, to answer these questions, I keep asking these questions about, how do the parts that we can take apart of the world relate to the parts that we can't take apart? You know, um, and so the Voices Speakers Bureau from BioLogos answers those questions from a standpoint of faith. So this is where I, um, it all started with the elective class, science research. And like I said, I took it every year and it turned out to be that I was doing research in a class. So that was research and teaching, in my case, learning at the same time. But once I learned the science, I was really interested in teaching it. Then I went to the University of Florida, and there I was involved with um, all sorts of things there, but I, I, I couldn't decide between degrees. And so I actually got a dual BS where I got a chemistry degree, and I spent half my time in the chemistry building, spent half my time in the journalism building, where I got a degree in actually public relations. They had a, a sub-specialty called technical communications. And so when I went to the University of Florida bookstore recently, I was like, I need to get a shirt. But which shirt should I get? You know, should I get the liberal arts or should I get the journalism? I actually picked the journalism one because the rest of my life's been sort of dominated by science. But I still think that communication 
is crucial and important. Um, and it's part of the way that teaching works, okay, for me. So then I moved to the other side of the country, and I went to grad school at University of Washington. And I started attending Bethany Community Church, where I still attend today. And so uh, I want to point out that there's where I spent, here's the building where I spent part of my time is Bagley Hall. My lab was actually right behind this tree right here on the University of Washington campus. Technically, it was a chemistry building, but it was a biochemistry sort of program. And then my church, um, my church has grown over the years. It used to be in this building. We built a new building. But one of the things that my church made national news on was, yes, we literally got struck by lightning right at the tip of that, uh, of that where you see the fire hydrant, wherever it is going. And this was actually reported all the way in New York Daily News. So I don't know if anybody in the northeast corner of the country ever heard about this, but you could have because it was reported across the country. We are the church to get struck by lightning. There was only worship practice going on right then. And from what I hear, everyone was okay. So it, it didn't cause any problems. So when you're going to grad school, you choose a PhD advisor. And actually, if any of you are thinking about going to grad school and the whole process of choosing what you're going to study and who you're going to study with, the one thing I want to say is choose the place that feels like home. The place that felt like home was not the more established lab. He actually had just started a couple years before, but it was the, the professor who prioritized both research and teaching and did both at the same time. And so I did both of them as a graduate student. I graduated in five years, which is actually kind of fast these days for getting a PhD. This is my dissertation, and this is Craig, who was my mentor that I chose. So, um, and I just have to say, sort of in memory of Craig, he actually died uh, in 2019. He died too early, you know? So it's uh, sort of a, a sad part of, the, of my life that he's no longer around, but um, he really formed me to be somebody who wants to do both research and teaching. And he was a great teacher. He was a fantastic teacher. And I think there's a lot of my formation that goes back to Craig as well as Mr. Regan. Notice how you can call your PhD advisor by their first name. But no matter how far away I get from seventh grade, Mr. Regan will always be Mr. Regan to me. So then after grad school, I did a postdoc, and I fast-forwarded to 2003, and I stayed in Seattle for both of those. And it's really by God's grace that I found a position. There aren't many professor positions, and especially if you want to stay in Seattle, the town that you've been in, there's not many of those. So I see it as a real gift that I was able to go to Seattle Pacific University, liberal arts, Christian university, exactly the place where I wanted to teach, where I could do both teaching and research. And so you see that it, we're right over the hill from the Space Needle, and the logo has changed since I've been there. We now have the updated logo on the bottom, but I'm still um, working. I have a research lab, and I have a teaching classroom, and I use both of them, and they sort of meld together, both of them at the same time. And I just want to say that as a Christian who's been in science, you know, I do my teaching all the time, and it's very easy to sort of talk about your faith in your classroom and how that pulls together the way you relate to other people, the way you're following Jesus and how you treat other people and, uh, you know, trusting in the future and things like that. But you also, um, being a Christian changes the way you do science, not necessarily your scientific conclusions, 
because the nature we can take apart is accessible to all. It's sort of universal is the nature of the universe. But God made God's creation to be able to be accessed by all. And yet God leads you through your daily life. So I, even in the lab, I would say that there's some guidance. There's some going where the spirit leads in that. And most of this is where I had hypotheses that were wrong, or at least I didn't know if they would work. You've got to take some leaps of faith in science, leaps of faith that the world will work the same tomorrow that it did today. And actually, I, my first hypothesis, 2004, was wrong. But we found out it was wrong, and the fact that it was wrong made for a more interesting story that ended up being publishable research on these immune system molecules. So um, there's all these hypotheses I can look back. And what I found is that if I involve my students in this process, it's sort of nerve wracking, right? Because you don't know what you're going to find when you're asking a question that someone has not asked precisely before. And yet it makes everything more worthwhile. And I've been doing this for, um, now I have to add up my years, uh, 16, 17 years at SPU, 18 years now, we're in 2021. And um, I found that it's, like I said, it's nerve wracking to give the students a project where I don't know what the answer is, but then we find the answer and the science works. And it's just been amazing to me how those leaps of faith have led to new knowledge about the world that we can pass on to others and they can even help people. There's some possibility that some of the research that we did in the last decade actually is being involved in France in some sort of therapy development from a, a company there. I don't really know because I didn't patent it. I figured that I don't have the resources to follow up on this. So we put it out there and somebody else has picked up on it. And um, in my view, that's great because it, this might help people, you know? So outside of the lab, as I was teaching, I was always trying to say, how does the world work? How does the, how does God leading us through this? What is God saying through his book of the Bible, as well as the book of nature, that in a sense, God wrote them both, right? But what do we mean by that? And how, how can we do that wrong? You know, how can you take that wrong? So these are fascinating questions. And these are the kind of things that I'm uh, leading to. And I ended up um taking a writing a book this book actually started out as physical chemistry lectures and it became um not just about physical chemistry physical chemistry has physics and chemistry right there but it also involved how that works itself out in biology because i see a lot of chemistry in the processes of biology this led to my association with biologos voices and so now i'm answering the questions about this across the nation from whoever asks the one other thing about my book it's published by Oxford University Press. It is written for everyone. It's not written for non It's not written for Christians particularly, but I write it as a Christian, and I believe the faith motivates implicitly every chapter and every page you can find it on it. But I don't have the word Jesus in it. I'm talking about the um, the universal parts of nature, and yet the same time. Reviewers have said, this is a weird book. The reviewers who come to it from a different place have said that this is a book unlike other ones. This is not the normal science book. What's different about it? I can't put my finger on it. And I'm like, well, that's because it's motivated by faith in a creator who was incarnate as Jesus Christ 2000 years ago. And that actually works itself out. So it's fascinating how that works itself out. 
So as we've gone through and life has unfolded, um, like I said, I've been involved with my church for a really long time. Uh, in 2010, we had what we called a 2020 vision campaign. I can't find any evidence of it online anymore, but it was a big deal at the time. I did find this evidence at um, one of our, uh, the branches of the church that we planted in 2010 because it was planted as part of the 2020 vision campaign. And they still have this. This is one evidence that you can find that the 2020 vision campaign existed. But of course, the 2020 vision campaign, nobody knew. It's now like a punchline that 2020 was where we had all these plans. And God said, no, you know, God said, I'm taking you another way. And we were challenged in a way that, you know, was really challenging and was really tragic for many people. And it was very difficult. 2020 was not like what we expected. So on March 9, 2020, in fact, that's almost a year ago, we got the announcement that this is serious, all classes are online only, and we have gone back to hybrid classes in the fall, and so I still do my labs in person. But in the spring, we couldn't do that. We didn't know the parameters of this virus. And so I was teaching physical chemistry class, the class that I wrote my book for, and a biochemistry class, but I couldn't go in my laboratory. So what am I to do? Because I have this big conviction that you teach students by giving them research projects. How can you do that when you're not in the laboratory? Well, um, this worked out different ways for physical chemistry. I actually gave them some kitchen experiments that they could do. In biochemistry, we actually um, made turned our computer into our laboratory. And we did a very topical project. I had questions about the genomes of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. And so we were looking for family similarities among its family of viruses. And so I gave my students a project, we worked through it, and eventually we got results. This was part of the class. Technically, they were graded on it, but they they were, um, you know, they did a great job. So they got good grades, you know, that kind of thing. And was this research or was it teaching? It was both. So I want to tell you just a little bit about the project. Now, I'm probably going to skate over a lot of detail, and some of this detail is online in other ways. I actually have a YouTube channel where I talked about these results in videos where they came out. And there's another place where they've been published that I'll get to at the end of this story. But um, it all starts from the knowledge that SARS-CoV-2 grows, you know, and it replicates itself and it has a family. So it's like a seed, a bad seed that plants itself in your cells, hijacks your cell machinery to make more viruses. Because there are slight variations among the viruses when it makes it and multiplies, it ends up having siblings, children, grandchildren, and they end up being related by their DNA. It's quite literally a family tree of viruses. This is an actual picture of SARS-CoV-2. If you look closely, you can see the little orange crown around the viruses, which is where they got the corona from coronavirus. But here's the virus family tree on the left here. And so this is scary. You know, the virus not only grows, it mutates and it changes. And sometimes the mutant virus is worse than the virus that came before. Better for it, worse for us, right? The good news is for this bad growth, this bad family tree on the virus side, you have inside you a good family tree of white blood cells And uh, the cells in your immune system, they grow from your bone marrow and they go throughout your body and they search for viruses and they destroy the viruses when they find them. 
These are also all related. You know, white blood cells have several family branches. So there's a family tree inside you, and there's a lot of similarities. It grows, it has children, it, it has mutations even. It has a deliberate system for introducing mutations so that it can introduce them more effectively. So this is the SARS-CoV-2 family tree. This is actually from a long time ago. This is from February. Now we have literally hundreds of thousands of genomes. Each of these points is a genome that we can read of viral RNA that contains all the instructions for making the viral proteins. The family tree shows you how the descendants of this virus have gone, and it is completely accurate to say that the virus is evolving. It has random variation that's being selected by its environment. As a result of this, now that's just the SARS-CoV-2 family. If you go back, SARS-CoV-2 came from a previous virus, and you can go back and you can see, oh, it came from this virus that's a lot like the SARS-CoV that was an epidemic that hit um, Asia in uh, 2003, I believe, 2003, 2004, maybe. I think I remember that right. So here's SARS-CoV-2 in red, and you see its sort of brother or sister virus, SARS-CoV, right below it. But on the family tree, you can go back more, and you can see that there's, if you look closely at this, you can see that there's a lot of viruses that infect different species, like bats and other mammals like us. We are similar enough in our bodies that a virus can infect both species sometimes. Sometimes it can, sometimes it can't. If you go way down on this to the sort of distant cousins, you see all these yellow viruses at the bottom of the family tree. These, um, if you look up and down, these are human coronaviruses again. So these infect humans and they cause the common cold. I thought this was very interesting. We have some distant cousins to this terrible virus that we can handle and we can deal with. We've even ex been exposed to them before. And there's four yellow human coronaviruses at the bottom there. So the thing about that is that the, the viruses have these distant cousins. Uh, the immune system also has its family tree. I want to point out the family tree, the lymphocyte side of the immune system family tree. You see that you have B cells that make plasma cells. And if you look very closely at the plasma cells, they have like little Y things on them. Each of those little Ys is like an antibody. The plasma cells make antibodies. So your antibodies come from B cells. But look over to the right of the B cells and you see there's another branch called the T cells. And over here, there's one that has a very um, evocative name of natural killer cells. That's the actual name because they are natural killers of bad viruses and virus infected cells. But you see that you have these other things. It's not just antibodies. There's immunity that comes from other cousins of B cells. And even T cells have their own family tree. Here's a, a figure just showing the different types of B T cells that you can have. And it gets really confusing. It's why we have immunologists who know a lot more about it than I do, because they know which cells do what and even what their biochemistries are and things like that. The main thing is your immune system has all these depths of mutation and um, cousin cells that protect you. And you don't know, we don't know the, all of it. And we don't know how it all protects us. So the main thing about viruses is to realize that the seed metaphor actually works really well for both your viruses and for the idea of an immune uh, system. Like the virus will infect a cell and make more viruses, and that will make more viruses, and it makes this branching pattern. This is where the family tree comes from. And T cells also have the same branching pattern.
Now, the important thing to say is that evolution is a very good word for describing what's going on on both sides of this picture. When you have something growing in a branching pattern where you have a lot of things that are selected by the environment in some way, then you have evolution. And so the way your immune system does this, it has, um, for example, it has a, uh, an aspect called clonal selection, which sounds like something from Star Wars or something like that, right? But look at the word selection. It's similar to selection of the fittest, natural selection. Selection is operating in your immune system to help you fight off these viruses you've never seen before. So um, if we return to the SARS-CoV-2, I was very curious about this finding that the SARS-CoV-2 family tree have these four distant cousins. And I wanted to say, how similar are they? How likely is it that when we get infected by SARS-CoV-2, we've seen something like that before, that our immune system has been trained to say, hey, this coronavirus is bad. Why don't you um, activate the immune system against it? Entirely possible depending on the amount of similarity. But we can tell, we can measure the amount of similarity because it's determined by the RNA genome of these viruses. And so we can sequence that RNA, we can get the information out of it. One of the interesting things is it's, DNA is like words. It literally is like words or like logos. And it's one of the reasons why BioLogos is called BioLogos because Francis Collins, who started it, was a uh, gene sequencer. And because he saw these words, he even called his book the language of God, because he he meant to uh, imply both scripture and DNA for his uh, work. So we were opening up this book, and we were looking at the DNA, or technically RNA, books inside the coronaviruses. And our question was, is it possible that these viruses are similar enough that we would have some measure of T-cell immunity? It's really important to point out T-cell immunity is different from antibodies. It's related, different. It's also, um, doesn't, it's also slow. So it won't necessarily prevent you from being infected, but it could prevent you from going into the hospital. Say if you'd been infected with the coronavirus cold a year ago, your T-cells could be activated. We can measure how similar they are and how likely the T-cells are to be activated. And in fact, there are some uh, immunology studies that uh, have found that there's a low level of T-cell immunity against SARS-CoV-2, even in people who've never been exposed to it before, even in people from 2019 who could not have been exposed to it before. They have immune cells that react. It's at a low level, and it's primarily T-cells and not antibodies. So um, very important caveats there. But here's the papers for those of you who are interested in immunology. And again, more of this is in my videos and stuff like that. The main point is this is all about recognizing shapes. And you do the same thing when you recognize the shape of someone's face. Here's my extended family. My brother and my mom and dad both um, moved up to be in Seattle. So we have the whole extended family. And yes, this is just me and my brother's family. We each have four kids uh, and so you can play the game of trying to see, you know, obviously we have our two wives over here and there, here's me and my brother, here's my mom and dad. And you can try to play the game of, okay, which of these kids is me plus my wife versus my brother versus his plus his wife. And, it, you know, I'm fascinated by, you know, genes and all this kind of stuff, but I can show you this kid and I show you this kid 
And you might say that they look more like siblings than some of the other ones, but they're actually cousins. You can recognize that they're cousins despite the fact that they only have 12.5% of their DNA the same. That's enough to have a similarity you can recognize. Well, these coronavirus cousins are 60% the same. So maybe the T cells can recognize uh, the new coronavirus based on the common cold coronaviruses. And this is where I gave my students an assignment. So I'm sorry for those of you who use Canvas as a course management system. This is, I know this is showing you um, homework on a Saturday, but this is what we did as homework. And it wasn't that much, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it didn't necessarily feel like work But because despite the fact that it was a lot to do, we were working toward an interesting question and that motivated us. So here's where the project was in Canvas. And my students worked through this on their computers. We were all in our own homes, but we were able to actually accomplish this. And so they collected data on how similar are these coronaviruses, new one versus the cousins. Here's the depiction of them. From top to bottom, you have the whole coronavirus genome. And we've used the computer to pick out the parts that the immune system can recognize by uh, specifically the T-cell recognition points. And so we arranged them all, we lined them up, and my students looked back and forth and they said, this one is 90% the same, I'm gonna color it green. Or this one's only 10% the same, I'm gonna color it red. What it ends up being is that you have more green colors where you have a good probability of a T-cell being able to recognize both the common cold virus and the new virus, okay? And this is all biochemistry. It's all the amino acids for those of you who have taken biochemistry. Um, so we, when you look up and down, you see a lot of red at the top, you know, and if we were doing this from, uh, you know, top to bottom, be kind of disappointed. We don't see a lot of similarity, but look at what happens when you get to the bottom. Look at all that green. There's a lot of places where the T cells should be able to recognize and I put boxes around all the green ones that I think are particularly good. And you can see there's boxes around maybe one third of the points in the genome. This is exactly what I expected based on the fact that the genomes are similar. So therefore it looks like the T cells can recognize them. This is what we have as a sort of a Venn diagram graph. The white circle is all of the recognition points for SARS-CoV-2. And each of the colored circles is the overlapping recognition points for particular um, strains of common cold. And you see that there's about one third of the white circle is covered with colored circles. And that's pretty much what we expected. It's what we found. And it was confirmed by our, our research. We can even say how much of the circle is in all four. And there's even 52 points of recognition out of about 800. 52 of them are in all four common cold strains. So it's entirely possible that this could happen at the T cell level. About one third of the recognition points match, which is about probably about the same as cousins' faces. So when we're talking about um, dichotomies and social media and things like that, uh, you know, you have, the, the, you have questions about, you know, is, is this research or teaching? And is Twitter research or, or teaching? Is Twitter work or play? Or does Twitter just get you mad? Because that's um, what happens about some of the time when I get on Twitter. Um, but I have found that Twitter is actually good for something. It is, um, it's a, there's a lot of play you can do, a lot of jokes you can pass around. You can also get some work done in surprising ways. 
So here's something where I saw one of my favorite authors, Siddhartha Mukherjee, posted a question. Could someone please publish a homology map of all the beta coronaviruses? You know, because he was asking the same question. Could they be recognized? Could we have this point of recognition? And so you see down here, this is in July. I was saying, well, I'm in the middle of a research project. And I'm like, he's probably just going to think I'm a troll or something, not going to pay attention to it. He replied and he asked, can I see the data? And I'm like, well, sure. And I sent him the exact Excel sheet that we were working with. And so um, then he said, that's really cool. Um, and then he remembered who I was. So this is like six months ago. Then in January, he um, called me up and said, I'm writing a paper about this, uh, an article about this, not a paper, for the New Yorker. And can I interview you? And I'm like, well, okay, you realize this is an undergraduate research project, but if you believe in the research and we've got the findings, if you want to use them. And so that just came out February 22nd. And I think this is just an amazing thing about how, you know, Twitter can definitely be used for bad, right? But Twitter can also be used for good. It's a tool that can be used one of the ways. And it allowed um, me to connect with Siddhartha Mukherjee. And he actually talked about the work my students did in two paragraphs in this little uh, interesting article. A great article. I recommend you read it. Um, and not just the two paragraphs that I'm in. So the thing is, that was the publication. I would never have predicted that. You know, um, I even assigned Mukherjee's book to my biochemistry students, like for the past five years. The Emperor of All Maladies is a fantastic book. So to have him ask me a question and me be able to answer it is was really like a cool experience for me. So the thing is, this was all because we could take the genomes apart and we could compare them with science on our computers. Vaccines work in the same way because we can take the virus genome apart. We can say which parts are recognizable and we can put those in a vaccine because the important thing about a vaccine is it's a broken virus. It's enough of the virus to recognize like a mugshot of the person's face, but it's not actually the virus any more than a mugshot is actually the person. If you break the virus so it can't replicate and you give the parts of the virus that can be recognized, the spike protein specifically, then you can have a vaccine. And the immune system is really good. And I want to point out the vaccines are really an act of grace. They depend on the grace of the immune system that we have. The fact that the immune system can evolve and recognize these viral proteins that we've never seen before, we're depending, everything depends on that. So the vaccines are a human invention, but they're based on the gift of the immune system. There's four different ways to make the virus. If you had asked me before all this, what was the most likely? I would have said one of the three on the left, but the one on the, the newfangled one, which is number four, where it's just the RNA, that actually works so super well that we have two amazing vaccines that I literally thank God for these va vaccines every day because they are better than what we have. You might've heard about the third vaccine, Johnson & Johnson just got authorized. It should have final approval, maybe even today. Um, that is one of the ones, on, that's a traditional vaccine. It was slower and it does it still works very well in my opinion, but it works about as well as I expected. These mRNA vaccines work better than I expected and they're already in arms in a large proportion of the population. 
I am just amazed at that. Here I have the coronavirus tracker from the New York Times that has the August 14th. And you see how now February 25th, look at all those vaccines that are coming. Yeah, some are abandoned, but we have so many in the pipeline that we have three really good options and maybe even more coming. It really does seem likely that we will be able to return to some sort of normalcy by summer. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that certainly. But I'm really feeling more and more each day like um, God's going to restore. And one of the methods that God gave us to restore the world is by being able to take a virus apart. So I just want to say that the word evolution is not a contentious word in immunology. It's happening in real time in our own bodies. And you see it in the titles. Here's some really interesting papers. Again, you can look in these papers in more detail if you, um, if you want to. Prolonged evolution of the human B cell response to SARS-CoV-2 infection. This is what makes the antibodies. SARS-CoV-2 evolution during treatment of chronic infection. There's um, another one, both viruses and immune cells evolve. And if you saw the first session today, God looked at all this and called it good. I believe the word was tov. That's the word God looked at, you know, humans with their immune systems and called that good. And w- what theologically does it mean to say that we have a world where viruses can mutate and show up, and yet God called that good? It's not an easy question to answer. But at least I can point to the good side of things and the good side of even evolution to be able to respond to new things. And just again to show that I'm not using this word lightly, this is a chemist, Nobel Prize in chemistry. I've seen her speak. She's a fantastic speaker, if you can find out um, some of her things. And she uses evolution in the lab to make new enzymes. Directed evolution, Francis Arnold, I um I just have to mention the chemistry, that chemistry involves evolution as well. So I said at the beginning that I was going to have part one and part two, science and faith at the same time. And well, I hope that you've been able to see that part two is actually integrated into part one. I've been, these are sort of interleaved. And just like the world has teaching and research at the same time, science and faith happen at the same time. But I do want to take just a couple of slides here at the end of the talk and bring out the faith angle in the terms of our common language to bring the word of God through scripture to these same issues that I've been talking about. So I think I've been talking about a lot of both and situations. You have, if you know your Bible, you have a very good objection to these situations. Not everything is good. It's, we have to modify how we interpret Genesis 1 in light of all the bad stuff that we see in the Bible, all the sin, all the second talk that you may have seen um, that came before lunch. How do you tell both and situations from either or situations? And you can say Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Incredibly true. You cannot serve both God and money with the implication that you clearly serve only God. But because God was a creator of all things, and God created them and called them good, we clearly cannot just say, oh, nature is evil. That's a theological mistake as well. So I was uh, thinking about how do I, and I thought of a metaphor that I want to use, and the metaphor shows up literally right next to this verse, the two masters verse, because a both and situation 
is in the previous verse to the either-or situation that's in Matthew 6.24. Right before it, you have the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And I want to use that metaphor to talk about the body being full of light is like how God in, uh, you know, illuminates the world with God's grace. So how can you tell where there's a both and? Well, you tell because you tell by worshiping and serving only God. And that means being able to see all of creation as made by God and good in some way, and yet messed up by sin in some way. Worshiping the one who said, I am the light of the world, and your whole body will be full of light if your eyes are healthy and open. So we're not the first people to wrestle with this. And one of the things I found really illuminating is that there was, um, back when science was first becoming science, before people were called scientists, but they were working out the methods of science, poets and Christians were struggling with what does this mean that we can take apart the world? And what does it mean that some parts of the world, you know, God's given us the ability to take apart and to predict what's going to happen? without like um, little spirits moving it around, without like other gods manipulating it. The, so the poet John Davies wrestled with this. You can see he's around Shakespeare's time. And he was searching for the right metaphor. And so he has this fantastic poem where he goes through all the metaphors. And I'm not going to go through the metaphor, but he rests on a metaphor. And I agree with him. I think this is a great metaphor for how can you have the both and situation where you have God as a creator illuminating God's creation. Here are the eight that he rejected. I'm not going to spend any time on that, but if you think about it, you have variations of all these that continue through today. He thought this through, and he settled on the final metaphor of sunlight through air. But as the fair and cheerful morning light doth here and there her silver beams impart, and in an instant doth herself unite to the transparent air in all and part. Skip a little. So doth the piercing soul the body fill. The soul is like light given from God to the body that fills the body and illuminates the whole body. Not located in one particular place like a little gland in your brain or anything like that. But it's given from your body, and it's part of your mind, your self-perception, your conscience. That That is a gift of God, and that's also not something that can be taken apart by science. Not at least in the same way that the body can. So I think this helps me to think about spiritual things. If the soul and body is like light and air. Now, I got this poem from Malcolm Geith, and he says, if this metaphor works, Each soul has a source beyond herself and that eternal light, who's not simply a substance, but a person whose being is in the communion of love. This means that the personhood, each person made in the image of God, is something given by God and something that relates to science and affects the world, but also something that is as high above the world as the sun is above the earth. I think this is really helpful. And this helps me how I think about all these things. And it also helps me to think about God's action. God is, the thing about God is God is infinite. And so an infinite line, for the mathematical ones of us, an infinite line holds an infant, can hold an infinite number of finite points. The infinite line is not diminished 
by the finite points that it includes. So in a sense, if God is infinite, we do not necessarily compete. God can um, make room for us. And God even makes room for human action and natural action, like me being able to go in the lab and take a virus apart. This is how the both and works. And it's why God does not compete with us because God is infinite and we are finite. Also, an infinite God is the only one worthy of worship, which gets back to the other saying that we started with, no one can serve two masters. So this is where I'm going to just just mention that this works for me because actually we have a lot, we have a very open universe in several ways. As a chemist, I think about how actually most matter is empty space in the sense of every atom, you think of an atom as very solid stuff. You knock on wood, right? And that wood is solid space. Atoms can't overlap, but they have a lot of space in them all the same. If you took the nucleus of the atom, it's 10 to the minus 14th meters compared to 10 to the minus 10th for the diameter of the atom. To put that into context, it would be the size of a pea in a cathedral, a size of a pea in this cathedral right here. So the nucleus is what we think of as matter, and the rest of it is just electrons, mostly empty space. And that's one of the reasons why certain forms of radiation can pass right through matter. And that's the same way in which the radiation does not compete with matter in certain cases. Metaphors always break down, right? It's the same way in which God's light does not compete with our action. And God gives us the space to choose and to choose to worship. This is the chemistry nerd. This is Rutherford's experiment. If you've seen this in classes, this proves that most of the atom is empty space which can be occupied by something else. So this means that God is hospitable. He gives us space to be. He's also enlivening and giving us power to act. So this is what allows us to turn around and worship. So um, I just want to, to finally close that this is all through scripture. And one of the things about scripture is putting two things together that at first might even seem to contradict. But then you find out these are actually non-competing visions. Mark 4 is about the kingdom of God being as small as a mustard seed. Isaiah 40 is about you can't compare anything to God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He, his understanding no one can fathom. Those are seem like they're two very different things. And yet, when Jesus spoke these words, he introduced it with what looks like a little introductory sentence. Like, what does that mean? Jesus is alluding Jesus is the word of God, alluding to the word of God, which is the word of God that came through Isaiah. So what would you compare God? What comparison would you put forward for him? Same kind of question. It's just Jesus takes that and turns it around. You've heard it said, God is infinite. That's true. But I tell you that God also works in very small ways, through seeds, through growth, through life. So the one thing, I, I and you see this all through scripture, James says, be long-suffering. The farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, remaining patient until it receives the early and late rains. And that means part of our action in worship is to be patient, to wait through a time of solitude like we've all just experienced. And James is even alluding to Joel 2, where God promises to restore all creation. This is the final word I want to give to you, because this is the word of God. God says, 
you know, um, the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. God has promised to repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And locusts are a form of pestilence or related to pestilence that the Israelites experienced where they didn't invite it and they had to endure it. Um, But the question is, how do you faithfully endure through this and trust with faith that God is good for an uncertain future? And so that's what I want to leave you with. And I know we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of different things, and I'm open to questions about anything. It looks like we have about maybe a little less than 10 minutes left. Um, so I, I'd be welcome. I'd welcome any questions about science and faith. Phil, um, I don't know if you've been seeing some, but thank you for your attention. And I welcome any questions.